Hello and welcome to another episode of Live Booleans. As always, I'm joined by my co-host Alex. Alex, how you going? Get it. Good, Costa. How you doing? Good, good. Today we have a awesome guest, uh, Cam Rogers. So Cam is a digital entertainment legal specialist. Cam, welcome to the show. Thanks, fellas. It's uh, good to be here. Great to have you here. So, digital entertainment legal specialist. Yes. That's the title that I saw. Um, why digital entertainment? You know, in terms of like you're a lawyer. Yep. Why is it that you got drawn into digital entertainment? Well, I guess, you know, I always had an interest in that area. Um, You know, when I was at uni, I studied film production and worked as a film producer for a while and, you know, producing short films and things like that and kind of always thought that that was the direction that I was going to kind of go in. I always had sort of an interest in games, but it wasn't really kind of my, necessarily my passion, but I had a lot of close mates that were pretty serious gamers and so... Yeah, kind of enjoyed um, that whole side of like the social aspect of it and hanging out with people playing games and things like that. But from myself, I just thought that my future lay in kind of film production. And so that was sort of my focus. Um, but yeah, as um, and that was for, for many years how it all kind of went down. I mean, I studied that, worked in film, eventually got a job at the South Australian Film Corporation, which was my first kind of significant job. And... Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, worked away in film, and off the back of that sort of met quite a few prominent film producers in Adelaide, and a number of people were on the board of the SAFC, and kind of got talking to a guy named Bryce Menzies, who's a lawyer in Melbourne, and um, he's been an executive producer on over 50 films, he's done heaps of stuff, and we got along really well, and he kind of offered me a job over in Melbourne. So... So all of a sudden I was, you know, went from working kind of at the SAFC, working on films, working on my own projects to the, my careers actually collided, you know, the legal po- mm. point finally became a reality in working in films. I started working as a film lawyer and that was kind of the, my background of how I got into entertainment. And while I was there, um, <clears throat> I just started getting into games. It was sort of, that was around the time, it was about 2009 and iPhone kind of came out. And mm-hmm. yeah, there was a whole bunch of studios that sort of crashed during the GFC back in those days and all these little studios started merging. And I just reached out to a whole bunch of them and started developing a relationship with them. And with it pretty quickly, it just sort of became apparent that this was a rapidly growing space in Melbourne. Um, and I picked up quite a few clients and just enjoyed working in the space. So yeah, I sort of just because of that kind of decision to of how I could sort of bring new clients into the firm and also out of personal interest, I sort of pivoted into mm. video games from film. And from there, I just enjoyed the space, you know, like I like working with creatives and, you know, I found working with creatives in games really rewarding, like just really mm. weird people <laughs> a lot of the time, <laughs> um, which was something I also liked about film, but I feel like games really kind of, you know, ratchet up the unusual nature and the variety of people that I was dealing with and I just really liked it so kind of focused on that and um, yeah I was able to sort of turn it into a business and I'm still here all these years later so that's must have done something right and how long you been running now well I started Cam Rogers Legal in 2012 it's a bit of a rubbery start date because I sort of took a bit of a a deviation after I left Marshalls and Dent the law firm I went and worked for a company called Token, which is a talent management company and TV production company. So worked on a whole bunch of TV shows, 
um, old shows like Before the Game and, you know, shows that are quite well known that were on the ABC, like uh, Please Like Me, then Series 1 and 2, and a bunch of other things that are still going on regular TV, like The Project and stuff like that. So I was involved in the business affairs and legal side of it. But while I was there, I got it carved out of my contract that I could still help game developers on the side. And I wasn't sure I was going to kind of continue, but the devs just kept contacting me and it just built and built. Yeah. And eventually it kind of got to the point where I was like, well, I've either got to take this seriously and go out on my own or I've got to give it up completely. And I decided to quit my job at Token and just go out on my own. So that was about 2013, kind of I reckon. And yeah, I've just been doing that ever since. And so yeah, wow. it's almost coming up on 10 years now. So I'm a bit, almost a veteran. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, veteran in the industry. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But back to your original point about kind of, you know, digital entertainment specialist. You know, largely that's just to sort of differentiate myself from the traditional media lawyers out there, like Marshalls and yeah. Dent that do film production and TV production and a bunch of others that are out there. Nobody else really kind of quite squarely focuses on digital. So that was sort mm. of my point of difference. And that brings in not just game dev, but also online culture generally, a bit of esports mm. and, and a few other bits and pieces too. But yeah, the largest part of what I do is definitely game dev, which has been has been great definitely something i want to touch on later is like you know the future and all these different legal things that are popping up um with nfts and all that kind of stuff um was there something that you saw in 2009 when all the mobile you know indie developers came came up was there something that you saw that all of these developers needed help with like what what was it that they kind of came to you and were like you know, we need we need assistance on this or that. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the thing that I identified pretty quickly was that you know, games and films shared a, had a like a, an ancestral history in a sense. Like they're both entertainment products. You know, they yeah. both fundamentally revolve around IP and making sure that that's protected. So that was how I went into it. I mean, that was how I was trained in the law firm was to kind of start there and work outwards. But you know. I just basically utilized the, the model that I learned from my boss and he was applying to the film industry to games. And that kind of worked, you know, to a significant percentage of the time, but the industries are kind of, you know, significantly different in two. I mean, games, because of that history of tech, tends to be kind of company focused and it's all about building value in the company. Whereas film production is a lot more contractually based. The companies expand and reduce depending on their needs. So a film production company will just be a couple of people, but then when they have to make a film, they'll go out and hire the 60 people they need and then go back down. In games, it tends to be, all right, we've got enough money to hire a full-time employee. Now we've got enough money to hire another one. Now another one, they build out slowly that way. So, yeah, that's kind of a key difference. But in terms of mm. the fundamental law that underpins it, like IP is, is exactly the same. They're both creative industries. You know, the, I think that the approach that I have was a lot more kind of um, conversational, down to earth, and that resonated mm. with a lot of people that weren't, particularly young people that weren't interested or hadn't dealt with lawyers before. They just wanted somebody that could help them through the problems that they were dealing with. And mm. after a while, you know, you start to see people have consistently have the same issues time and time again. Um, so yeah, it was, um, it was, it was just right place, right time. And I think, you know, when the iPhone first came out, 
you just had this situation where suddenly there was this platform that was extremely accessible to developers that they could make money on. So, mm. you know, they were, people were making things and instantly had a worldwide audience. And, um, yeah, I was lucky enough to work with some really creative people that um, had hits early on. I suppose, the, you know, the most notable one would be Matt and Andy with um, Hips to Whale and Crossy Road. When that landed in 2014, that was, you know, just massive. There'd been big hits in Australia that before that that I hadn't really had a big hand in or no hand in at all. So Half Brick obviously had, been, had done really well. And then there was other games like Flight Control and stuff like that that were made in Melbourne that had done well, but I didn't have anything to do with them. But then Crossy Road I was pretty involved with from day one. And, yeah, from that, it just sort of built out my reputation, I guess, and um, the phone just started kind of ringing hot. So that was probably the turning point when I realised, like, this is a legitimate thing. I can actually build this out and focus exclusively on games and not worry about films anymore, and I'm, you know, going to be able to still earn a living so yeah hmm. that was that was kind of the key and turning point i think professionally when it all started to kind of fall into place but yeah I, it's it's been an interesting ride um i feel like i was lucky to get the type of education that i did and just working in creative industries generally working in film just gave me kind of a pretty pragmatic approach to legal advice and yeah hmm. i think um, I was a little, probably a little bit ahead of the curve in, in that way. I think a lot more law firms now are starting to become a lot more, um, you know, less stiff upper lip about the way that they provide their advice yeah. and doing things that I knew worked in the film industry. So providing fixed fee and that type of thing, which is starting to become more regular too. So there was a few things that I got right early on that helped out. They've started to loosen their ties. <laughs> yeah, a little exactly. Bit. Yeah. exactly. <laughs> That's what I was going to say, because I haven't met, met, I haven't met any lawyers except yourself and you're very approachable at a, you know, spoke to you at the last unwind event and stuff like that. And it's not what I would imagine lawyers being like, yeah. I've seen an episode of Suits and I just based <laughs> my understanding yeah, off of that. Well, my old boss, Bryce, like, um, he's got hair down to kind of here and he's known for wearing these bright red cowboy boots. Whenever he's doing a deal, on, um, including international deals with quite major film producers and stuff, he usually, when the film is finally closed and everything's done, he reads a poem. Um, so that was that was my education. You know, that's who I learned how to be a lawyer from. So I feel like I, I owe a lot to Bryce and the way that you know I've definitely kind of you know I guess the thing that I learned from him was you know professionalism and individuality aren't necessarily mutually exclusive you know like you can still be yourself as long as you get the work done there's attention to detail there and you're professional about it that's all people care about you know there's no mm -hmm. need to be this dude that's wearing a suit and all the rest of it i mean none of that interests me at all so i'm lucky i found an industry where nobody cares <laughs> yeah that's right yeah yeah that's what it's got to be an interesting um thing to work with creatives on a legal side because i mean i imagine legal isn't the first thing they want to think about when they're making a, a, a game that so like would would they predominantly contact you when the thing has happened that they need to contact you for yeah. or is it more a precautionary well i mean the, I, it was kind of fortunate in, in some ways that in melbourne in particular and working with film victoria which i've now done or which is now vix green um have, you know, mm. have done thousands of times. The way that the Film Victoria agreement works, and you see this in all funding bodies, the SAFC is kind of the same. 
Um, Screen Australia will be the same. They have what's known as a solicitor's opinion letter requirement. And that letter essentially means that the applicants have to talk to a lawyer at some point. And it's basically a safeguard for people being yeah, against themselves, really, because as you say, Alex, you know, law, law isn't the first thing people think of. But that solicitor's opinion letter requirement essentially meant that before you could get your final payment or even your first payment in some cases, you had to have documents in order that satisfied IP requirements to the letter of the contract. And so that became like a structural reason why people had to speak to a lawyer at some point. And yeah, because I was pretty easy going about it and had a fixed fee that was, you know, based on the work that I was doing, but also the overall budget of the game, you know, people could come and speak to me and they knew, cool, okay, this is the budget for the game. I know that I'm not going to go over this legal budget. That works. And so it all sort of came together. But that was really the reason why, because of that requirement in the Film Vic agreements. And yeah, it just sort of it worked out that way. So they had a reason to have to speak to a lawyer and then I happened to be there kind of saying, well, I specialize in games. And so luckily that a lot of them spoke to me first. And again, because of six, I'd worked on some successful games early on, I guess word of mouth kind of took off a little bit and yeah, I was in, a, in kind of a good spot. So yeah, I mean, I've been pretty fortunate to be supported by some really interesting people over the years and yeah, it continues to happen, which is awesome. Have you yeah. have you seen a huge, uh, you know, you, you started in film and then you're in games now. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, digital entertainment. Have you seen a huge uptick now back in film because of all the streaming services and everything like that? Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, look, there's a, it's in, been interesting to see like the type of support that film has received over the years from all of the funding bodies where games just got nothing. Um, mm. And so that was always a bit sort of frustrating for me, but you know, that I guess, you know, film has got kind of a long history in Australia, particularly in South Australia, you know, the SAFC has produced some classic kind of Australian cinema. Um, but even in Victoria, you know, there's a really strong history of it. And um, <clears throat> yeah, that, that was just fortunate that I was in Victoria and that was the only place in Australia that was really supporting games at the time. So, you know, mm. there was budget. And it took me, you know, for ages, all of my clients were based in Melbourne, but now they're kind of based all over the place. Um, but that was that was really the reason why. So I think that now that things have opened up a bit with the work that IGEA has done in getting, you know, the digital games tax offset off the ground, uh, Screen Australia now funding games, you know, I think that's it's definitely changing. Like the attitude towards investing in games from these traditional places is starting to become... You know, they're, they're getting back on board, which is awesome to see. And it's not just creatively that that makes sense. I mean, commercially, it makes a lot of sense too. You know, there's a lot of funding bodies in Australia that invested in in uh, film projects that have never really gone anywhere financially, and they certainly haven't made their money back. So, you know, a lot of the games ones have got a much better chance of doing that because, um, you know, the distribution model in games is a lot easier and more straightforward than it is in film. So, Yeah. On that, the um, when you, with the distribution model and things yeah. like that, have you noticed things get easier or harder as time goes past and time goes by? Sorry, and Apple and these big com- Epic kind of lock down what their terms and conditions are now that like enough time has passed them to kind of test the waters and see what people are going to do. Have you seen it get easier or more trickier to navigate? Well, it's definitely trickier, but it's still easier than traditional media models. Um, um, you know, I think I'm really interested in 
what each of the industries can learn from each other. Um, and I still think that, you know, games has got a better distribution pathway than film does. But, you know, back in the early days, particularly working in mobile, like people were, a lot of games were making money that were just kind of lucky that they were, that, you know, the timing was right for them. I wouldn't call them like particularly high quality games. So they still kind of generated quite a lot of revenue. But I think those days are over. You know, back then it was just release the game on iOS work out a way to get featured, which often just involved talking to the right people at Apple, and then the game would make money. Whereas now, mm. you know, the App Store is just incredibly difficult to navigate. You know, featuring and things like that haven't worked in years, and it's really just a complete raffle. It's got nothing to do with the quality of the game anymore. Um, so, yeah, but having said that, like if you look at the film industry, there's layers of sales agents and distributors and all these kinds of things that have to happen that you have to get aligned um, before the film can actually be released in the cinema. So you've still got a pretty good fighting chance compared to that. Yeah. Yeah. I remember the, um, like the early days, the iOS, like as in, uh, I think you mentioned before, like 2007. So there was no like app store, you know, that's yeah. when it came in. So like, that's say, so about, yeah, 2007, 2008. Yeah. Um, and you know, everyone at school had the, the jailbroken, iPod touch or the iPhone and then they came out with the app store and they kind of shut down a lot of that jailbreak but then all those games just somehow ended up on the app store for like 10 like you know you'd have a free pool table game and the exact same game is now being sold for $10 on an app store I don't know the terms around it if they just like went well you made it on our platform it's ours now or yeah I mean Kind of. I think it was, you know, originally when the App Store kind of came out, there was like the, a race to the bottom, you know. You'd have some people that would release a game for five bucks and people would be in uproar saying, there's no way that I'm spending $5 on this thing. It's only worth $2. Um, and so, you know, that, that type of thing happened. So people then naturally started to drop the price of their game. And it was like a race to the bottom. Like these quality games that were there were like, well, we just got to get an audience somehow. We've got to get out above the noise. So... We'll do it this way. And of course, that's how kind of, you know, um, in-app purchases kind of started to take over in games because it was like, well, nobody's buying anything anymore, so we need to work out kind of a strategy that works. And I think, you know, Crossy Road was a really good early adopter of that. Free to play, play for as long as you like, but if you want these characters, you gotta buy them, you know, that, that type of thing. And that really kind of resonated and that model uh, certainly, certainly sort of worked and yeah, sort of has rapidly became you know, kind of the default strategy, I think, for a lot of those types of games. But, yeah, that was only ever going to work for so long, and I don't think it really, you know... If you were setting out to make a mobile game now, you really need a lot to go right for it to be successful, you know, put it that way. And I think, you know, this is why Apple Arcade kind of happened. I think Apple recognised that the App Store is actually a really difficult place to do business now. And so they invited a lot of the, the premium developers that they work with and what interesting projects onto that platform and worked out a way to remunerate people based on the success of the game. And that was kind of a, a reason why that entire platform kind of emerged. So, yeah. And have you seen a, a, like a huge adoption of those kind of like with clients that you deal with uh, or even just people that you know um, adopting that new kind of subscription model or aligning with those companies that offer those services yeah i think so definitely kind of seeing it go that way i mean it it sort of depends who you're talking to i think if you're an emerging developer 
honestly, just like if you can make a game that gets released on Steam or somewhere like that and you do that successfully, you know, that what you will learn from going through that experience puts you in really good stead, you know. I think what we really need is a situation where people just don't have so much invested in it financially that their first game has to be a massive hit or a hit at all for them to kind of mm. be able to sort of continue. And I think that was one of the, the, the strengths of the Film Victoria model early on um, and, you know, continues to be, but will be for the Screen Australia model too. It's about giving people the ability to pay for these things and pay for themselves so that they, it's, they're not just bootstrapping from the ground up. And, um, yeah, hopefully... They can learn a lot, and as an co industry collectively, you know, um, that knowledge becomes kind of more commonplace, and yeah, the the standards improve all around the country. Do you? So when the sorry, no, no cool, say, uh, <laughs> um, when um, so we were talking, you know, the digital law and things like that, because that's such a that could be so many things inside of digital. Yeah. Are you are you a good go-to for like anything that might arise? Like I imagine like a big ones like copyright disputes. Sort yeah, of so like the IP kind of things definitely. But I mean the way that I describe it is that I'm kind of like a GP as it applies to the video game industry. You know, so people come to me, they might have like concerns about employment related stuff or shareholders agreements or that kind of corporate law stuff or management kind of stuff, IP stuff. Or then really kind of pointed things about dealing with one of the funding bodies and things like that. And, yeah, and then litigation and stuff as well, which I don't do litigation myself because it just is a bit of a time sink and I'm just one person. But if people come to me, much like a GP, it's like, all right, I'll talk to you about it. If we'll work out a strategy of how we're going to fix this problem, either I'll do it, I'll know who to talk to about it, to hand you over to that person to kind of help people happen, to help, help people get through it. So that's sort of my model. I don't really charge for like phone calls or people reaching out. I only charge for when it actually sort of becomes proper work and there's something to be done. Yeah, but it, I am kind of a generalist as it applies to the video game industry. And for that matter, you know, I'm starting to sort of branch out and working with kind of influencers and stuff like that too. Um, and a lot of the stuff that they're doing is kind of underpinned by the same stuff as well. Like it does come back to IP. It does come back to working with other people and getting a product to market. So there's kind of similarities around all these things that I kind of draw on and providing my advice. And I think that, yeah, be it film or a video game or an influencer with a podcast such as this or, you know, something else that they're doing, streaming on Twitch or whatever, there's certain things that are consistent across that. And yeah, I find that, being easygoing and approachable is a much better way of dealing with people than kind of coming across as officious or you know scary lawyer guy kind of thing. Mm. Yeah. Do you find Do you find a lot of it is like just educating people on some of this oh, stuff? Yeah, like yeah. I mean, the crazy thing for me is like I'll be have, I'll have a, an email in the morning from some kid that's just come out of AIE or Swinburne or UniSA or wherever <laughs> with a really basic question about IP which is fine because they won't have any experience in that area and then you know 10 minutes later I'll have one of my more established clients ringing me about a really pointy component of their distribution agreement with respect to a specific territory in relation to a game on a particular platform or you know a tough negotiation for a voice actor in a, in a game that's coming out or something along those lines so 
the variety in the work that I do is is also kind of interesting. It's um, it can be a pretty up and down sort of a ride. Yeah, yeah. But that's fun. What, keeps you on your toes. Yeah. Are there are there like common things that you've seen yeah. from, early, like, you know, first people who are just coming into it and have no idea about any of that? Are there, is it things that is yeah. you mentioned IP? Is it is it always around that kind of stuff? Well, that's usually the best place to start because it's kind of like if the if you've got a problem with IP, then it's fatal, right? Like. It can be. It can mean that there there can be no game. Like sometimes you get it resolved, and quite amicably, and it's fine. But other times you don't, and there is no way around it. So the biggest misconception you have is like people that work together think that ah oh, it'll be fine. We're mates. No worries. We'll work on this together. We'll sort that stuff out later. She'll be right. That's sort of an attitude. And of course, you know. Yeah, these are just little businesses and personalities kind of come into play as well. And so after people mm-hmm. have been working for a few months, people haven't been paid, other opportunities come up, there's life pressures and all the rest of it. And so you kind of get into a situation where certain people want, don't want to do it anymore and they kind of, they want to walk or they want to go get another job or, or something like that. And then you're the other people are left in a situation where it's like, well, now we have to get the IP off the person that's leaving. And they, you know, there may be bad blood or you know, just bitter bitterness around the issue generally, and you have to get something signed. I mean, that's the thing about IP. It's a bit sort of old-fashioned in that sense. It has to be in writing, right? So if you've had a discussion about it, that's not good enough. And the other thing is, like, it's not a majority rule situation. Like, you can have 99% of the copyright, but if that other person has 1% of the copyright in the project, you need their consent to do anything with it. Mm. And by anything, I mean distribute it, continue to develop it. You know, anything that you might want to do with respect to that IP is going to need their consent for the rest of time. So the way I always say to, you know, new clients is like, let's get that right, because if we get that right, other problems, be it money or whatever else, credits or anything else that we want to kind of think of, they can be resolved. But if the IP is gone or is there's a dispute over it, the whole thing is shot. So I normally start there for that reason. It's sort of, you know, it's probably the most important place. And also, if you're working with people with low budget, it's like, all right, well, let's start with the biggest problems first. There's no point in me, you know, talking to them about shareholders agreements and things like that when they don't have a company yet let's start with the ip and then we'll work outwards from there once we kind of um get all that stuff sorted out so that's generally where i start yep the um when i was studying game development at um tafe sa they brought in a a lawyer for a day pretty much to stand at the front and have everyone throw questions at them and no one was really taking them up and i was just asking a whole bunch of questions because at that stage i was working on um like freelance websites freelance logos and things like that and the thing that to this day in all digital in parts of the industry the, the the in design at least let's say the thing that i found the most mind-boggling is that people don't understand copyrights when it comes to fonts yeah they're just like the fonts are there i can use it and then i i remember i was working on a client's project and i i was a bit sketchy about it i was a bit worried about it and i said like is this your font like and he's like yeah yeah, i got the license got the license and i'm like i need you to see i need to see the license um before i start on it and he was like oh you know just start on it we'll get it done and then that alone just made me not want to work on it and then I asked the lawyer, I was like, um, what is the rule? Like, who gets it? Who's liable in that case? And he said, 
everyone is liable. He said the designer's liable, the owner's liable, um, and like using defont.com, even if they say they have the license, isn't good enough. Yeah. You know? And to this day, people, if they're like, it's in Microsoft Word, I can download the font. Yeah, I mean, you're going to be, I mean, you, yeah, you got to be careful with stuff like that to be sure. I mean, yeah, I mean, in some ways, like those types of things with fonts and stuff, because they're sort of commercial licenses, like you can generally remedy that with some cash. But the bigger mm. issue I find is like individual A is an artist and individual B is a programmer. They're working together. They have a dispute. And this guy's art is just everywhere inside the game, obviously. Mm. And then the programmer who wants to continue on with it has to go and get consent from the artist. And the artist is like, well, no, I don't like you and I don't want to work for this project anymore. And that's it. Like the whole thing's kind of over. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. I mean, the other area that's kind of often misconstrued is like people just using music that they found somewhere like oh here's music yeah cool we can incorporate <laughs> this onto our into our game i mean i remember once many years ago i worked on a game that's title i won't say but yeah they just basically <laughs> took music and then they didn't put in the game they put in the the trailer for the game and they thought that you know they just didn't think the trailer was like a standalone kind of project Trailer did quite well, like got tens of thousands of views. And then the publisher for the music got in contact and said, what's going on here? And, you know, we expect X thousand dollars for this use. And that was pretty rough on the developer because they were thinking, great, this is awesome. The game's out there. We're getting some traction with our trailer. We're going to get wishlisted, all the rest of it. And yeah, ended up kind of costing them. So you've got to be careful about these elements that have got copyright and have got value in the way that you use them, you know, like... I can see the, the guy's logic was like, well, it's just a trailer. I'm only using it in there. I'm not putting it in my game. It's a promotional thing. It's There's no value there. But evidently there was. And, um, yeah, I mean, it all, that worked out fine. But you got to be careful. Think it through from all the way from the beginning right through to, um, to distribution about all of the elements that you use and make sure you get a paper trail with respect to all of it. That's my advice. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's, so it's it's things like that that people should be looking out for even from the get go. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Is there anything else like indie artists be like, um, well, I'm doing them a favor. I'm promoting yeah, them. Yeah, yeah, I'm promoting Lady Gaga. Yeah, exactly. You do get a bit of that, and it's like, well, actually, no. You know, those things have value in their own right, and yeah, you still need some sort of an agreement. Like if you've got an agreement from the person saying you can use this song to promote your game that's all good but you can't just take it mm. and then go back to them and say well hang on I'm you should be paying me because I'm giving you publicity you know, that, that type of thing so yeah. yeah unfortunately these things have value and as the developer you don't get to say what kind of value that they have I mean I would say that you know the thing that kind of keeps me up at night is is game jams because they're kind of chronic <laughs> for this because they're just these little <clears throat> events where everybody comes together super quickly you know, nobody really knows what's happening tomorrow. Sometimes they come up with really cool ideas between three or four people, and then it's like, well, all right, we've agreed we're going to set up a company, and the company is going to have yeah. nine people in it, and one guy does nothing but play the trombone, and um, I'm a programmer and producer, so you'll have this really lopsided situation where two people are doing 85% of the work, and then there'll be one person that does hardly anything that still owns kind of a portion of this company. So yeah, game jams are pretty chronic for for that. Like they're super awesome from a creative perspective and I love some of the stuff that comes out of there, but it does create this challenge because the IP situation in that that environment, like nobody's thinking about it. 
come together super fast and you can kind of almost get a playable demo kind of a thing happening off the back of that. And then what happens? Like, who owns it? Where is it owned? Like, it just becomes this kind of problem. So those games that do well in game jams that want to take it further, you often see kind of issues in that area, I would say. But... um. Has, a, has Cam Rogers Legal ever thought of hosting a game jam? Well, I, I mean, I know Giselle Rosman pretty well, and she's certainly run yeah. quite a lot of them. So, yeah, I mean, I, Giselle and I have spoken about this issue, actually, because it is kind of, it's not really a, a you know, it's like a huge problem. They we've, We tend to kind of get them resolved because the games haven't gone so far that they can't be fixed. But, yeah, I think it's a, definitely an area that um, some, yeah, we can put yeah. some attention into and sort of provide some assistance, that's for sure. Yeah. What do you think? Like, is a, a, a ways that you can let these people know that you know these are issues that can happen before they happen. Like, is it is it education at these game jams? Like, you know, once you're done, like, yeah, well, I make mean, sure you like think about. There is a bit of that. I mean, I guess like the terms and conditions of the game jam would be a good place to kind of start. And look, I have it's been a while since I looked into that, so maybe that is completely all sort of above board, and I'm not sort of singling out any particular game jam here just a general thing across a range of them I've worked in over the years that I've noticed. Um, and as you were saying, Alex, it just is this kind of lack of appreciation of how the law fits into all this stuff. Like, I've done presentations at, at, at certain organisations where I've gotten there thinking that I'm just doing a little presentation kind of thing, and then I realise, you know, heck, like, this is the legal component of this entire course. I'm coming in and just doing like a couple of hours of lecturing, like what chance have I got, you know, that type of thing. So it's just a, an area that's kind of a little bit undervalued and probably a little bit misunderstood even by um, conveners or, you know, the, the, the managers of these courses themselves. You know, it's hard to find someone to come in or they can't take on board the legal advice themselves. They're not lawyers. So it sort of falls away a little bit in a number of different areas. Yeah. Yeah, because you find that as well with online, because everyone, I guess, turns to the, the pre-made documents or a, yeah, any kind yeah. of legal thing online, you'll still get in the footer, this is not legal advice. And you're like, legal's in the name. Yeah, I know. <laughs> what am I doing? I mean, you've got to be a bit careful about pulling documents off the internet because often they're not drafted in Australia and they're, you know, the, the, the language mm. doesn't match up with the Australian kind of law. And if they were to ever get challenged... I mean, there's an old saying, right? Like, where there's a hit, there's a writ. So if the game does really well, you can rest assured that these documents are going to get scrutinized and challenged and there's going to be an issue. If the game does nothing, then nobody cares about the legal documents. Why would they? Again, there's no money in it. Like, no one cares. So, um, you inherit the debt. Yeah, it's only... That, that's the thing. And this is why, like, people get away with things for a long period of time using pretty ordinary documents because nobody's checking it, nobody's challenging it. Like, if there's a copyright dispute, it's not like, you know, the cops aren't going to turn up at your house and kind of say, well, look, you know, you've infringed this person's copyright, you're coming with me. It's entirely reliant on the person whose copyright was infringed taking issue with it and coming after you, you know. And then it's incumbent on you to prove that you do own the copyright. So in cases of games that don't do very well or are only modestly successful, nobody challenges this stuff. But if you have a mega hit on your hands... And suddenly, you know, you're working with publishers and they're like, oh, well, show us the documents or you've got people come, wanting to come on board as investors, which is even, you know, which is a thing in Australia at the moment because 
all these offsets and things like that are generating interest from publishers and investors. First thing they want to do is look at all your documents and go, well, show us that this game that you released, that you actually own it. And that can be the first yeah. time sometimes that these things ever get scrutinized. And, you know, if everybody's on good terms, that's fine. But you sort of, you find yourselves in situations where it's like, well, I haven't spoken to person X in five years and now the investor or the publisher is telling me I've got to go get this document signed, which the publisher has drafted that's 25 pages long. You can't even find the guy. And what do you do then? You know, these types of issues. So it's 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 largely about like risk management IP as much as anything else. It's about even, even if nobody ever checks them, you can just put the documents away and then you're good and you can move on and not stress about it. And if something great happens that like you get an investor or a publisher interested, they want to look at it, you can show it to them, it gets ticked off and you move on. But if it's just mm. written on the back of a beer coaster or something like that, then you start to run into issues. Or you've just found a document it's been translated from Russian. Yeah. <laughs> you might run into a few problems there too. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God. And I'm guessing there's, um, do you find a lot of developers that are in that early stage kind of go, well, it's not really worth the money. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I completely understand that. that. I mean, you know, th- we've spoken before about the history of game dev in, a, in Australia and the lack of support it's got. So I tend to be pretty flexible around that. I mean, Particularly early on when I you know, was just getting started, I could be super flexible around that. Now I'm really busy and it's difficult to devote the requisite time to super emerging devs that have got absolutely no money. But I, I try and give back where I can and provide advice by the phone and, and things like that. But yeah, I, I totally get it. Like nobody wants to have to spend money on these documents that nobody else is really going to see. You want the money to end up on screen, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, I understand I understand that. And I think that sort of comes from the low budget filmmaking background that I came from. Like I'm just really, I was, grew up in that way or the whole time I was at uni making like short films and stuff, having to go to venues and places and say, you know, can we use this space? And by the way, we have no money. Like I've had those hard conversations. So I know what it's like in, <clears throat> in game dev too, when it's like, well, we kind of need all your expertise and legal documents, but we can't pay you anything. So I try and be flexible as much as I can, but yeah. Would you take a, a game in uh, in payment? Like if someone could make a legal simulator where you're the main character, <laughs> like I can't pay you, but we'll make you this pixel art game in six months. <laughs> well, I don't know about a game, but I, look, I'm super interested in legal tech, you know, I think that, um, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I think that a lot of law firms are really unprepared for like, you know, the, for the digital industry to sort of take over and yeah, I, I can just see a lot of the mechanisms that are kind of standard in law being automated by some sort of software, you know? Um, mm-hmm. So that's definitely an area of interest. If somebody wanted to talk to me about that and I'd be keen to hear their thoughts on it. <laughs> yeah, well, then a lot of people do say, like, say that, that AI is getting to the point where, you know, it'll be able to draft up documents and kind of customize it in a way that, you know, uh, is specific to the person. And I've seen, I think, is it like Legal Vision or some other big law firms have like templates you can buy off their site and that yeah, kind of stuff? Yeah, well, I mean, look, fundamentally, law is a system of rules. And software yeah. is extremely good at following rules, really. You know, I mean, yeah. like that's it's like if A and B, B then A, you know, then D, C, D and E, and it can kind of go off in those directions. I mean, I have seen little bits of legal software that are interesting. Like 
one that's like a, a word aggregator. So it will take a clause and it, with its AI, it learns that certain words should be near each other. And then the more contracts you kind of feed through it, it starts to sort of figure out that, you know, there's outlying words that shouldn't be in that clause or are very rarely in that clause and it kind of raises a red flag. So I think there's a few kind of like software products out there that do stuff like that. But yeah, I, I think it's an emerging kind of a space. They definitely have like legal conferences now around mm -hmm. tech. So yeah, there's a few people operating in that space, but yeah, I, f I find that aspect of things interesting as well. Speaking of emerging, have you, have you been following the whole NFT stuff and how all this legal, like, is this something that has come to your attention yet in terms of, has, has anyone come up to you and, oh. you know, asked you about this kind yeah, of stuff? Yeah, people or? ask me about it all the time, all the time, <laughs> you know, expecting me to have like some sort of aphoristic answer where it can be just resolved <laughs> in, in, a, in a single <laughs> sentence. I mean, I find it interesting, leaving aside like the kind of ethical issues and things like that that have really bothered mm -hmm. and frustrated a number of people particularly in the games industry and with good reason you know i think if you can get over that hurdle and start figuring out a way to do this ethically like there's some opportunities there for sure i mean i think you know one of the ones that stands out to me is like is in-game rewards you know you've got these people that play games for a, a thousand hours and have nothing to show for it so if you, you could have some sort of like nft reward inside the game like that type of thing makes a lot of logical sense i think you know, that can have value and be traded and stuff like that. So, you know, there's definite applications for games and there's people that are doing stuff that is just mind-blowingly crazy, really. Um, when you think about, you know, that's a really obvious example, but then you've got people that are setting up entire kind of communities and utilising things as currency and stuff like that. So, um, you know, I, I find that really interesting. There are a few yeah, ethical considerations that we need to get over first, though. Um, but, yeah, I mean... Definitely, there's there's just so much interest in NFTs and stuff generally. Um, I haven't been involved with anybody that's actually mm. minted any coins or anything like that. But you see, you look around and even like companies like Qantas are now doing it. And it's like, yeah. it's kind of gone full mainstream without anybody, you know, checking the fine print is my view. Yeah, that's right. We, and and we, it, um, had, uh, sorry, Cass, really quick. Yeah. We had, it just reminded me, when we had... Um, Chris Larkin oh, on yeah. recently, yeah. you know, the Holy Night, because um, oh, I forgot wh why it got, no, no, it didn't. It was just the look of it because like, you know, we put the episode out and we'll do a little pixel portrait of the, the person talking and the way that they're standing, all these comments were like, oh, they're like, I thought this was an NFT thing. Yeah, like their hearts yeah, sank. Yeah. And I was like, oh shit, <laughs> what have I done? Well, even like GDC <laughs> just gone. Even there was people talking about NFTs at GDC, which I found pretty amazing. Um, yeah. You know, there's, yeah, it's kind of been, it's kind of gone from, it's just rapidly become yeah. a, a talking point in a number of different areas. So yeah, it's going to be an interesting thing to follow. That's for sure. Yeah. The, the, yeah. The, the, the part that interests me heaps is the, I think it's the, the way you can, I think, distribute rights or, or I mean, the supposed way that you can kind of say that you have some ownership over this and you can now use it in which like you know well, that's you right. grant licenses through an nft or ownership of of an nft which is just so interesting yeah well that's right i mean that's kind of the good side about it but then to get back to like the fundamentals of ip none of that works if the person that mints the 
NFT or the coin or whatever has stolen the artwork in the first place, which is what you're currently seeing now. So you sort of start to see things of value, like artists creating things, people are stealing them and creating NFTs with them. So you don't actually get around that problem. There's still that sort of ethical issue that underpins all of it. So yeah, it is interesting. I mean, I find it weird that the Copyright Act was written a long time ago in the 60s. And it's still kind of got quite practical applications to very new media. So, mm-hmm. look, it's not perfect by any means, and it's a it's a it's a strange structure that's not immediately obvious to people, to creatives. But it does still sort of ha- still does still stand up relatively well, um, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does it need any updating or anything like that? Oh, I think it have there been amendments, to it? and it's still yeah. But I guess the principles that underpin underpin it are still fairly logical and understand. I mean, you can get into a fairly philosophical descri- you know, argument about whether or not copyright should actually exist, really, because, you know, in some ways it does exist to kind of keep rich people richer. You know, you look at large companies that own IP, they can just they can just sit on that and keep manipulating it and using it in different ways and it just sort of at the expense of all other people. So you know, I don't want to kind of get into a philosophical discussion over it, but there are some broader questions around should copyright exist that are also interesting if you're into that kind of jurisprudence and legal theory kind of side of things. Um, and that, is that that's kind of like Disney, how they they keep ex- they somehow keep extending the is it the Mickey? I don't know. I can't which license. It <laughs> yeah, was so or which you know, the, the standard rule of thumb is it's like seventy years from the from the life of the author. Um, and notionally, that's kind of on balance to kind of give value to the family or the person that's created something. So if you come up with something super successful, it doesn't just go into public domain instantly because you deserve to get financially rewarded for it. On the other side, though, these things can't be in copyright forever because as a culture, we need to be able to have... It needs to be a bit more of a melting pot than that. And these ideas suddenly become um, quite central and quite... Um, you know, like fundamentally understood by communities and people draw off these concepts to come up with new things. So it's that counterbalance of like, how much money can a person earn from their idea versus if that idea becomes so pervasive that everybody just understands it now and it is a cornerstone for how we come up with new stuff, like at what point does it then change? And yeah, that Disney example is kind of a good one because they seem to be able to just keep pushing out that that deadline. Um, so yeah, there's a few kind of quirks like that in in the law. Yeah, they, they keep lobbying or something. I don't know how they've managed to change law like that yeah. as, it, as it happens. Well, you know, they're a very very big company. Yeah, <laughs> that's, right. Yeah. that's right. The Winnie the Pooh one came up recently, and you could see the the mindset chronologically of all the artists on Twitter go. The um, Winnie the Pooh copyright is up, and then someone be like, "It's just the books," and everyone go. Yeah, well, that's right. Like, I can't use it. That's the thing, because sometimes you get, like, music, which is out of copyright. Somebody makes a recording of the music, but the recording of the music is not out of copyright because it happened last week. So you (laughs) you can take the original music, like the notes on the page, record it with your guitar that's behind you, Alex, and that's an original work, and that is yours. But you can't take the recording off of a CD and kind of play it, even if it's really old music, because that recording could be a lot newer. So, yeah, I mean, you start to get into the peculiarities and the nuance of music as it applies to, yeah. to games, and that's where it starts to get really tricky. So I won't get too deeply yeah. into that. For sure. <laughs> well, something we always like to kind of wrap with is um, 
some advice uh, for developers that might be listening. Um, so, I mean, in this context, you know, yeah. what's some, some uh, let's not say legal advice, but, well, you know, what are some tips <laughs> um, for, for people looking to get into this or even people, yeah, developers that are looking to yeah. get some... I mean, I don't know. That once a trend that I've seen is that people that are really conscientious about all areas of game dev, be they boring or not boring, uh, tend to do quite well. So if, you know, I've, I've got certain clients of mine that ask me thousands of questions, are really interested in it, want to know exactly why I've made the decision that I have. And you know, those people seem to, because I, I suspect it's because they apply that approach to all aspects of game development. So their games tend to be better and they tend to be kind of, um, you know, well, they tend to do better financially as well. So I think it's a case of like, if you're going to throw yourself into it, like it's a difficult industry to kind of get established. Take all aspects of it seriously, not just the art or the programming or whatever your little bit is. Try and sort of learn as much about all the facets of it and just embrace it all and yeah and in that way you're going to learn a lot more and your game will have a better chance of succeeding mm-hmm. you'll be able to sleep at night <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah exactly at the very least yeah. and yeah. and uh, where can people find you if they're, if they're looking for um, camrogerslegal.com but you know more often than not I mean I'm not super active on socials anywhere outside of Twitter, really. So at Cam Rogers Legal is probably the best bet, but then Cam Rogers on LinkedIn as well. Um, yeah, and um, yeah, my website's got a portal, so if you've got any queries, just drop me a line there, and that eventually gets through to me, and I'll kind of address it when I get a when I get a chance. But if you don't hear my, hear from me for a week or so, feel free to give me a kick because sometimes I might be busy doing other things. Yeah. Yeah, and also <laughs> like if we're at events like you know if we're catching up at um, the Adelaide catch up or if I'm in Melbourne you know we've got um, GCAP coming up pretty soon if you see me there and you you know just reach out and say g'day I'm always happy to talk to people about what they're up to and you know give them some give them my thoughts on where they're at Actually, I saw GCAP get announced today did, yes think. and it's going to be in yeah. real life so I think it's early October I can't remember the dates but yeah going to be good to see everybody that's for sure yeah we reckon costa we're gonna we're gonna take the plane up let's road trip it yeah, down no, down. down yeah yeah, <laughs> down. yeah that's it <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Awesome. all right thank, thank you, you so, so much. much cam yeah well look i mean thanks heaps for having me i know um law is not exactly gonna bring in the punters in but no you are a i trying to think of the term a <laughs> Not guru. Guru, I, I was trying to think of some kind of money box or something <laughs> of just box. knowledge that yeah. it is worth it just to show well, That's it. funny. Like it's, yeah, you don't, you don't really know what you know until people start probing you with questions and then you're like, oh yeah, actually that happened here or that happened there and you know, that type of thing. So yeah, I've been around a while now. So there's, I'm, you know, it's more likely than not that if you've got a particular problem, I've probably encountered it before. And if I haven't, then I'll be super interested. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Anyway, thanks for having me, guys. It's been great. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks, Cam. Right. Bye, everyone. Cool. Thanks, fellas.